Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Once upon a time, not that long ago, hope and change formed the basis of our political discourse. That seems so long ago. Remember a time when the Koch brothers were the enemy? When we thought John McCain was the far right? When those of us on the left were worried about the FBI and the Justice Department needing oversight? In just 10 years, we've gone through the looking glass to where up is down, down is up, black is white, and enemies are embraced. Our divisions over the culture wars, politics, race, and class have been weaponized. And demographics, geography, social media, and technology now make it so we seldom have to interact with anyone that disagrees with us. In this atmosphere of tribalism on steroids, is any kind of national positive politics still possible? Clearly, on a local or community level, there's some reason to be optimistic. However, on a national level, we have digressed to the point where even the instruments that our founding fathers created may not bring us back from the brink. My guest, Dan Pfeiffer, is a bit more optimistic in his new book, Yes, We Still Can. Dan Pfeiffer is the co-host of the popular political podcast, Pod Save America. He was one of Obama's longest-serving advisors, where he was White House communications director and a senior advisor to the president. His new book is Yes, We Still Can. Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump. Dan Pfeiffer, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. It's hard to believe that the same America that witnessed Grant Park on November 4th of 2008 is the same America that was at Donald Trump's rally in Florida last night. It's almost a kind of cognitive dissonance to try and reconcile that. Talk a little about that first. You know, that that is a... That question is really sort of what led me to start this book on the day, essentially the morning after Hillary Clinton lost and Donald Trump won, was to try to understand what had happened and the idea that our first African-American president can be replaced by someone who, who made very explicit uh, racial appeals throughout the course of the campaign. And I think there are two ways to look at this, right? And I think there's an existential question here for the country, which is, is are we in the midst of a long-term backlash to an African-American president, where i.e. the idea that Barack Obama was the aberration, or is Donald Trump the aberration, who won by a uh, remarkable set of never-to-be-repeated circumstances involving Hillary Clinton being under email, being under FBI, FBI investigation the whole time, the Russians hacking the DNC and Hillary Clinton's campaign emails, Jim Comey deciding to unburden himself, contrary to Department of Justice protocols, two weeks beforehand. And the thing is, is that question is unanswerable, right? It is an existential question. If a tree falls in the forest, if I was an animal, what kind of animal would I be? It's, it's a topic for sociology and philosophy classes. My view and the point of the book is we have agency in the, in the answer to that question, right? Which is there are more Americans, as evidenced by the popular vote, uh, in the 2016 election, there are more Americans who are deeply concerned about not just Donald Trump, but the idea of Trumpism. And if those Americans decide to get involved in politics and turn out to vote, both in 2018, 2020, we can, we can answer the question once and for all that this was an aberration. And, and maybe one day we will look back on this, you know, much like people look back on the period, um, you know, of Watergate in uh, Richard Nixon and say, this was an aberration. We have corrected for it and we are moving forward. And, you know, as Barack Obama always says, progress does not move forward in a straight line. It never has in American history. And so, but we can keep, we can keep on the upward trajectory if we participate in and 
vote in and win these upcoming elections. I guess the point is that as, as we look at that existential question, maybe there's not a single answer to it. That so much of it is, as you say, a reaction to, to Obama. And, and certainly that's part of it. Certainly when we look at so much of Trump, it is the mirror opposite of so many things that were part of both personally and politically of Obama. But the other part of Trump is is that it was a reaction clearly to something that was going on in the country, in the body politic, that, that it is not all Trump, that in many ways Trump is merely the symptom of the things that were going on. Yeah, I, 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 I make this case in the book and I make it all the time on Patrick McGusper is that Trump is the symptom, not the disease that plagues our lives. That's exactly right. That he is, that there is Trumpism, which we've just decided to name after Trump, but is this idea of, uh, of a politics that is trying to, that is a reaction to a, to a changing America, an America that is changing economically, demographically, culturally, where white Americans know that they are, they are going to become within a few decades minority in this country that, the old way of doing things is changing. And, it, and that change has been catalyzed over the, over the Obama decade. If you, if you take 2007 when Barack Obama decided to run for president until he left two years ago, um, you know, think about the change that happened in that period, right? The economy, because of the financial crisis, fundamentally changed, eroding the idea in, of, a, of sort of the middle-class bargain in this country for a lot of workers, particularly non-college-educated blue-collar workers. You have changes in technology where uh, Facebook, Twitter have fundamentally changed how people distribute information, how the conversation happens in this country. You have demographic change where the country is getting younger and browner on a daily basis. It's happening faster every day. And then on top of that, you have cultural change. Just think about the question of marriage equality and where we went from 2004 where the, the Bush campaign ran a, an explicit campaign trying to codify the idea within the Constitution that marriage was between a man and a woman to, it be, to marriage equality being the law of the land less than eight years later. And all of those things uh, together have created an environment where a, a demagogue like Trump could take advantage of that, those forces. And and the 2016 election, if you played it out a thousand times, I really do think Hillary wins 990 of those times. But things broke Trump's way. And we, and if they hadn't, we'd be having a very different conversation. We have to reckon with, and maybe the, and this is partially, I talk a little about Barack Obama's uh, measured optimism in the face of the politics right now that he shares with me, is this, like these forces are real in our country. And maybe we can only deal with them if they are forced to the forefront as opposed to being, uh, sort of in the background as they were for a lot of the Obama administration. I mean, it's interesting that you can take that argument and really reverse it in many ways because all of those changes that you talk about, the speed at which they've happened, the way they've happened politically, culturally, economically, that all of those have the an opposite effect as well, that it's all of that change and all of those different ways that, that we operate that have enabled this tribalism that we see to be weaponized in the way that makes it so divisive today. And maybe there's no turning back from that. Yeah, it, I, you know, it is, it is easy to get dark now. I, but I do believe we can turn back. At least we are going to turn back uh, over the long run, in part because the next generation of 
Americans who are coming forward, the millennial generation who are about to become the most powerful force in politics, if they participate, if they vote, are very different. They are less partisan. They, although they are ideologically progressive on a lot, in a lot of ways around climate change, civil rights, immigration, gun rights, they are less partisan. They're less tied to either party. So right now, the political rules are there are very few swing voters. Both parties have to motivate their bases to win. That creates a very polarized environment. Once the only path to victory is to compete over millennials and, and, and Democrats and Republicans are competing for the same voters, I do think that has the potential to change the political discussion in this country and make it uh, more rational. I mean, I guess the question then is the degree to which millennials are turned off by what they're seeing now. And the other part of millennials being this kind of results-oriented, metric-oriented approach to seeing the world that really puts them more in tune with maybe local politics or even state politics where they can see the results of their effort, but maybe less so on the national stage. I mean, that, that, is, that, is, that is the challenge for Democrats. Republicans have very limited appeal to the vast majority of millennials who are not participating in our politics because of their views on immigration, race, women's reproductive freedom, those sorts of things. Democrats need them to win. That is it. That's why Barack Obama in 2008, 2012, and that's more important now than it was then as more of them have aged into the electorate. And so we have to craft an appeal that works, and we have to sh- – we have to convince people that their vote matters. Donald Trump succeeded for many reasons, but one of them was he was able to make it seem like a battle between the lesser of two evils, and it was just two corrupt, dishonest politicians, and it didn't really matter who got elected. We have to do the opposite. We have to inspire people. We have to show them that it matters. It's partially why I wrote the book. It is, part, it is why we have the podcast Pod Save America, and it's why we tour the country trying to speak to millennials. This is this is the challenge, and it can go either way. We could, you could, uh, you could lose a generation of, citizen, of of active citizens if we don't do this right. And so the stakes are incredibly high here. Doesn't the, the ability to inspire, though, require some kind of charismatic leadership? I mean, Obama was successful at that, very successful at that. But don't we then need to find the next charismatic leader, the next Barack Obama, or the next Bobby Kennedy? Yeah, I mean, the the messenger is as important as the message, right? Because mm-hmm. the messenger has to be believable and inspiring and make you like voting is is unfortunately hard in this country, right? Uh, you have to uh, in a lot of states, not necessarily California where where we are, but in a lot of states you have to you know wait and register months in advance, weeks in advance, wait in long lines, do all of that, and you need so it needs to. You need to be inspired to do it. Obama was successful at doing that, for sure. And our next candidate, you know, I'm hesitant to say we need the next Obama, but we need someone who can make people feel like citizenship matters. And so that's going to be what hopefully comes out of the uh, comes out of the 2020 primary, in which, as far as I can tell, 100 Democrats are going to run. And we'll see. And we don't know, you know, it is... At this point in the 2008 presidential cycle, no one was talking about Barack Obama running. He wasn't even in the conversation. And then he decided to run, and most people thought he couldn't win, and then he won a historic uh, electoral landslide. 
We don't know who that right person is now, and I'm hesitant to even know because campaigns are a, are a match between the moment and the person. And we don't, we don't yet know what voters will be looking for in the spring of 2020 when Democratic primary voters start going to the polls in Iowa, New Hampshire, California, et cetera. I, mean, I guess the other part of it is the way in which Trump and Trumpism and, and, and everything that we're seeing today – the way in which it may have changed, and, and maybe it won't over the long run, but the way in which it may have changed how we view politics and how we look at politics today, the fatigue that so many people are feeling, even some of his supporters, that, that, that it may have changed politics for a long time. See, I am, I'm always skeptical to make long-term pronouncements, uh, but I think it seems like a hundred, like politics definitely feels harder and longer than before. That has a lot mm-hmm. to do with Trump. It also has to do with how the internet and social media have sped up the news cycle where a day feels like a week, a week feels like right. a month and a month feels like a year. Uh, but if you can take yourself back to, uh, 2006, 2005 in the darkest moments of the Bush administration, where we are stuck in a war with Iraq that where we, we invaded the wrong country after 9-11 and messed it up every single way and it seemed never ending. And there was massive amount, massive corruption investigations on Capitol Hill and around you know congressional corruption and bribery. You had the response to Katrina. And politics, you know, you could have had the same conversation back then. And two years later, Barack Obama shows up on the scene. And so I think the person who replaces Trump, the Demo- if it is a Democrat who replaces Trump in 2020, they have a tremendous opportunity and, frankly, obligation to turn that around, right? I think that there will be – I think that if you put aside the most hardcore red hat wearing Trump supporters, I think a lot of Americans want better from our politics and better from our country than what we're seeing. They're disturbed by the chaos, the anger, the insults. And if you can have someone who speaks to the better part of America, that person has a real chance – to succeed and change the tone, at least for a while. Look, we're a polarized country of two parties, and we're going to disagree on big issues. But there is someone will have the opportunity to hit a reset button, and I think that is uh, that you know that 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 is the opportunity there to change the trajectory, at least in the interim. How important is it in that framework, even taking your more optimistic view, to begin to try and tease out? The, what, what you refer to as the sports center effect, this, this looking at politics as a zero-sum sports game. Look, I think we have to, yes, I think we have to, I think the right candidate, and this is somewhat Obama, what Obama did, will run against that. We'll try to speak, we'll try to call for a better politics. And it may not mean that, like, look, Republican, Democrat, Republican Party has a lot of work to do to get out of this mess. And they, and they are not going to greet a Democratic president with open arms. But I do think we, a, we can try to heal the bonds within the country, you know, if you, even if you accept out the most partisan Americans, that there are a lot of people in the middle who may have voted for Trump but are concerned about what's happening. You know, you have these voters who voted for Obama in 12, Trump in 16. You know, you have people who didn't get involved in the politics who can try to speak to the better parts of America and say we are better than this. And I think that can help. But look, we have a lot of work to do. Politics has always been messy. It's just messier than it is right now. And I am hopeful that Democrats, that it will be an effective message for Democrats, both in the primaries in 2020 and then the general election, to have a more hopeful, optimistic take about where they can bring America, as opposed to sort of running on what I uh, refer to somewhat tongue-in-cheek as a paler shade of orange. Mm -hmm. 
Right. I mean, one of the things that, that's so interesting, and, and, and we don't know because they're, they're not honest about it, is how traditional Republicans look at this. And in many ways, they're better off if the Democrats win the next time around because it, it enables them to become an opposition party once again and get their own grounding and recover from, from Trump. I mean, I think I think they very much like for all of the protestations of Paul Ryan at all. They like they are all the party of Trump now. They are they are a fully owned subsidiary of Trump and his voters. I think if 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 a few votes in Iowa, I'm sorry, in 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 Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania gone different way, Republicans would be in the middle of a very long, very painful, soul searching experience, where they would have lost three presidential elections in a row. They have lost the popular vote in four of the last five and would have been trying to figure out how to appeal to a broader swath of Americans. And that is kind of one of the real tragedies of, for politics writ large of the Trump victory is it taught people this lesson, and it may be because of some a sort of a black swan event, but that Trumpism is a path to victory. And, you know, and if maybe if we can win in 2018 by large margins and then win in 2020, Republicans will have that. And maybe some figures will be willing to stand up to the the worst elements of the Trump coalition, the the Steve Bannon types, the white nationalists, the people who are running these explicit racial appeals and say that they're not welcome in the party and begin that hard work. But we'll see. I have fortunately, sadly, I have zero faith in just about any Republican politician right now, not right. named John McCain. Right. It's a little bit like the Stockholm effect has taken over the whole party. Yeah, that's exactly right. You can, you know, we heard these these protestations early on about how they're going to stand up to Trump. But at the end of the day, they, you know, they they are afraid of Trump. It's in part because Trump has real sway over the base. And, you know, there's this primary election in Florida coming up. And there's this guy named Adam Putnam, who is a right. member of the Congressional Leadership, Agriculture Commissioner. He was the favorite. Uh, but he was an establishment Republican. He was going to he was most likely going to win. And then Trump endorsed this other guy who basically lives on the on Fox News saying crazy things. And that guy's now going to win. And that and that fear has, you know, sort of put even the you know, the, the only the Republicans who are not going to run again, who will briefly have courage and everyone else has decided that their own political survival is more important than what I know they down deep believe what is best for the country. Mm-hmm. And and finally, talk a little bit about your sense of what the Democrats need to do if they're successful this November, if, in fact, they take control of Congress. Beyond finding that leader that we talked about a few minutes ago, what else do they have to get right? Well, I think they have to—Democrats have to reclaim the mantle of the party of the working and middle class in this country. So— if we like, we're like, let's say we take the House and Senate back. We still can't pass laws, right? Like, we still need a president the same month, but we can put forward a bold, comprehensive, easy to understand agenda for how to help the working class in this country. Because the Republicans campaigned as populists, but they've governed as corporatists, passing massive tax cuts for the wealthy, undoing the walls, the rules that. Uh, the governed Wall Street made it easier for some of the risky behavior that led to the financial crisis. We need to expose that and provide real alternatives. And then the other thing I think that from a policy agenda that's important is what has happened in the Trump administration shows that we never anticipated 
as a system, a president who was willing, who, who lied, who was willing to enrich themselves, who was willing to not abide by the norms of releasing tax returns and being honest on financial disclosures. And we need to, we need to put some teeth into some laws about corruption in this country. And if Democrats can be the anti-corruption pro-middle-class party, then we have a real chance to reclaim the, reclaim the majority in the house and Senate and the state houses and the white house. And so we're going to like, it's, it's going to, we need to do all the investigations because we have to find out what's happened in this administration where it's very, there's been certain corruptions and maybe a lot of corruption, maybe crime, but it has to be paired with a proactive, bold, progressive uh, policy agenda. Dan Pfeiffer, his book is yes, we still can politics in the age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump. Dan, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.